0: This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. I'm Mike Ashenfeller. My guest today is Anne Van Camp, director of the Smithsonian Institution Archives. Let me start back with your education, Anne. Um, I see that you have two degrees in American history. Mm -hmm. Um, And then (laughs) your first job was... was, um, Uh, VP of Information Services. So can you talk about that?
1: My first job was actually working at the University Archives um, in Cincinnati, University of Cincinnati. And then I moved to uh, New York to um, work at the Chase Manhattan Bank, um, initially managing their archives. And then ultimately, by the time I left, I was managing the archives, the libraries, and a lot of the data purchasing that was going on at the time.
0: And I'm looking at the dates here. That was around eighty-nine, nineteen eighty-nine.
1: I was <laughs> in New York from nineteen seventy-nine to eighty-nine,
0: 79, right? Eighty-nine, yeah, yeah.
1: So, so that was a time when you know technology was really changing, like very peculiarly. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was you know the first time that decade. I think you know from nineteen seventy-nine to eighty-nine. We really saw a lot of transition from, you know, just like kinda of office automation systems changed very quickly, but so did, you know, the delivery of information in lots of different formats. And we went through, you know, like well, the answer is just to microfilm everything and to <laughs> to starting to think about well, maybe we could do some things, you know, electronically. Mostly at that point, you know, there were people doing things, but with office automation, it was mostly mimicking the paper world, but just, you know, making it faster. But there were also attempts to create um, large amounts of data that could be accessed online. So this was when, you know, big data aggregators like um, Nexus and Lexis and dialogue and all those kinds of things were emerging as data sources for people to use, but the model was still very um, much, you know, centralized, but centralized data and make it available through the library or something like that. And, and then it was a, a matter of, like, every new database or data source had its own dedicated hardware to go with it. So our library was really kind of a menagerie of technology <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: what, um, what was what was your understanding at the time of um, electronically delivered information so you're in this transition mm-hmm. you know starting at the beginning of the decade right. to the end you 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 went through the transition, so did you get any training or or did you just kind of pick up what you know well at the, the job? time
1: at the time um it was mostly training that was done um internally in the, in the bank, you know, it was determined, like, who's going to need to have technology and know how to use it. And um, so there was the technology side of it and then the sort of data side of it, like who's going to manage the information and how are we going to deliver it and and all of those things. So it was very um, interesting and it was very also very um challenging, I think, for a lot of people because they they were very uncertain about what this meant in terms of, you know, how they were going to work, and this was, at the early days, it was, mo- you know, there was all this talk about, well, you know, machines are just going to replace people, and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, everybody's going to lose their job, and we'll have these paperless offices, well, you know, that was a long time ago, <laughs> we still haven't gotten very, I mean, we've just made the matter worse i think
2: <laughs>
1: so um that didn't happen um not people didn't lose their jobs and you know we created figured out how ways to make even more information available so um so that was an interesting period to go through like, i would say by the end of 1989 it was clear that you know this everything was here to stay and that, you know, things were just gonna get more and more sophisticated and that we could really network in ways that we couldn't before and so for me from a from a information delivery point of view, that was a very exciting time because the reality of what we we, it was what we could do to push our information out and make it much more accessible was just very exciting. Yeah, Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I can imagine for an archivist, yeah, yeah. Well, was uh, was Chase Manhattan were you were um were they networked to other branches or was this all kind of um you know in-house in-house databases and and things of the sort these these electronic were, resources were were they on you said online mhm were they Well ne-
1: some of them some of our we were using um we were using email a lot at that point and um so that was obviously something that we could use that we could use to network with other people. It was still a time when a lot of the data sources were you know only available through the library or or at least within a particular building, you know, you'd be able to get access to them. And that was just beginning to think about how you could actually really communicate across the world and you know tie all of our branches together. And then, uh let's see, then I went from there to Stanford, to the Hoover Institution, where I was the director of the archives there for about eight years, and that was a really interesting period of time as well for lots of things that happened. I mean, that was really the time when the Internet really started to burgeon, and we could see these new ways of communicating and creating the information and pushing information out. And,
0: you're, and, and you're, you're right in the heart of it, too, at Stanford.
1: Yeah. And, were, and people were really, you know, uh, sure, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. There were lots and lots of people who were very forward-thinking at that time and really, um, you know, trying to create all the new things that we couldn't even imagine at the time, you know, and I remember driving every day, driving to work and seeing this place called Yahoo. <laughs> I was like, what in the world is that? <laughs> um, but from from the point of view of the director of the archives at that time, um, I'll tell you why that uh, this was a really interesting time for me, because one of the things that we were most... Um, well-known for at the archives at the Hoover Institution was documenting contemporary uh, war and revolution and and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we were really looking all over the world you know where's the hotbed of political activity, what's going on and in 1989, which is the year I went there that was also the year that the Berlin Wall fell wow. and the Soviet Union started to come apart And this was amazing because we could actually watch it on TV. We could, you know, we could, we captured a lot of the film on video because it was like that instant watching this happen. It was like a new way of documenting this kind of stuff. And then um, all of the ways that we had to communicate were really just changing so rapidly. And I think, It struck me that part of the revolution, part of the way that things, and why things happened so quickly, and why they happened kind of so bloodlessly, was because of the technology of information, and being able to watch this, you know, live, and it was just amazing. It was huge.
0: Well, as a historian, too, you must have been, you know, doubly excited, you know, an archivist and a historian, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: It, you, was, uh, it was huge. <laughs> did you did
0: you have to consult with uh, history professors there at Stanford as to you know what to what to focus on?
1: Well, we had a lot of um, very close ties with with professors both at Stanford and really everywhere. I mean, we we really were. It was an international collection. It was a a very um, well connected place for people who were studying these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So. We had kind of, you know, area experts for all the different parts of the world, and I remember when the Tiananmen Square incident in China happened, this was really the first time we saw tons and tons of um, email coming out, you know, like it was just instantaneous flooding of information coming over these email lines, and not that many people had email at the time, so we had a couple of people who were <laughs> trying to collect all this stuff, but what they did was they printed it all out, you know? so Oh, wow. <laughs> like, oh, man. They <laughs> came down with these, like, stacks and stacks of paper every oh, day. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, there wasn't really a whole lot of other... Con- we didn't know at that time, like, well, how are we going to actually keep this stuff, you know, and how were we going to um, make sure that it stayed alive? And so that was really at that time it was about the best thing we we knew how to do
0: what were the email systems that you were using was it pine or what it's all it's all command line stuff so yeah i'm trying
1: to remember what it was it was i don't know how these i don't know how it was working i can't even remember right then but um
0: so was it captured digitally at all and then printed out or was just printed out in real time
1: it was probably printed out whenever that person, you know, got around to printing it out that day or whatever. Yeah. But that was that was really at the time that was people's reaction to getting that kind of communication, you know, it was just like just print it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is interesting in itself because it, it it will be a record of, you know, kind of what it looked like coming across the line and um the messaging is very instantaneous and you know, very real. Yeah. And uh so, you know, that, but that was the early days and people didn't think about how we were going to actually preserve online data and information like that.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: But that changed quickly uh as well. I mean, we were... We knew that, you know, there was the day... This was our day that we could really start putting more and more and more information on the Internet and make sure that, you know, our our collections are being represented in the best way possible out there. And most of the work that we did at that time was really had to do with um, sort of using some of the standards for cataloging that had been created primarily in the library world. And the archives finally realized that was probably a good place to tag on and Include our information, you know, along with these big, uh, bibliographic databases. So that's the way, you know, archival descriptions first got out and online. And if we put, if we put finding aids out, they were usually just like Word documents or something like that. So, so we didn't really have anything
0: else. So by by about ninety six, ninety five, ninety six, you know, mm-hmm. that's the commercial websites started. They they spread like right, and <coughs> they spread almost overnight. So mm-hmm. you had to change your thinking, I guess, as far as access and you know all these new possibilities opened up for you as far as how Absolutely. you would serve up documents. Yeah, yeah, and so 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 you left well i left the
1: I left the hoover institution in um, nineteen ninety six and went to work for the research libraries group
2: mm-hmm.
1: which i don't know if you know if you're familiar with them mm-hmm. uh, so i was I was going over to sort of help them with the archival program and you know was trying to bring archives and special collections and other kinds of historical organizations into the program mix. Um, it was mostly a library uh, consortium at that time, but all of those libraries that were part of the research libraries group also had their own, most of them all had archives and special collections within their libraries. so. They weren't unfamiliar with the issues and the needs to, to kind of help shape them and and include them in the, in the information, world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a, a fantastic time. I mean, that was really just uh, everything changing so quickly from 1996 to you know the mid 2000, you know, until 2000 or seven when I left there, that decade was just a, a game changer on every level. You know, that was like when we really went full bore on the Internet, on the, on the web, and putting, you know, web pages out and collecting information in all kinds of new ways and, you know, just dramatically enhancing access to research resources wherever they were linking up collections that have been dispersed, you know, that kind of thing. Mm
2: -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. And it it was just fascinating to be a part of that and to sort of watch all of that transformation. And then people actually had gotten the idea that they could actually digitize, you know, all collection materials and even put those out, not just descriptions of things, but real things and, you know, images of real things. And so there were some big issues about, you know, how we would manage information in that environment um, and at the same time digital preservation was a huge issue. People were like terrified about what we were going to be doing with all this stuff. You know, there was sort of this massive outpouring of like new data that was there to manage not only things that were being, you know, reformatted into a digital form but also the things that were being created in digital formats and, and people were really I think it was this sort of very tense time in the preservation community of like, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> <stuff>, you know? <laughs> well, and you, you
0: you mentioned you mentioned working with microphone back at uh, was it Chase Manhattan? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so you know you've been through this major conversion process already so now you know there's talk of of uh, how do you preserve your stuff so that i'm sure that raises a lot of questions about you know well is this format going to last you know are we going right. to go through all this work and have to duplicate the work again in another 15 years or so
1: oh right well we're still dealing with all that i mean <laughs> every every format type you can think of <laughs> we still are dealing with because you know we still have tons of microfilm and microfilm isn't holding up very well we're finding and um I video is probably I... the worst medium ever <laughs> you know videotapes it's like, oh my God, this is the most unstable uh format, but it was so so popular for a long time you yeah. know I mean think of all the stuff that was captured on video for a long time, you know, all of our news stations and all of our um, you know, just tons of things that were captured on video and then and now we've got to figure out what the hell we're gonna do with that. So we're rapidly trying to figure out what's you know, what is the best strategy for that kind of thing to reformat to a digital form so that we can at least take it to the next generation of whatever we're gonna be looking at.
0: Yeah. Right now, you said that that, uh, microfilm doesn't hold up so well. I I wasn't aware of that.
1: We have a lot of microfilm that's actually not doing well. I mean, if it was kept in really good storage conditions, it's probably good for another little while, Um, but, you know, it was sort of the panacea of everything, and now we're finding that it's, you know, really not so much, and it was a terrible, you know, access medium, too. No one liked it. No one, researchers hated microfilm,
2: and... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: so but you know it's interesting because you you look back and you think well gosh you know everybody's trying everything possible to to you know cram more and more data onto smaller and smaller media and formats and so we had these you know floppy disks and then Discs and then CDs, are like, oh my gosh, CDs are like the Panacea—they were gonna be like, "Oh, they'll last forever," and <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> and so it's, you know, I think that it's interesting to 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 remember the history of all of this and to, you know, constantly be reminded of it because we didn't lose everything and nothing, not everything is gone or lost or falling apart, there are probably a lot of things that we maybe didn't capture the, in the best way we could have, but, but we did a fairly good job. I mean, it's not like we weren't good stewards of the things that we were supposed to be stewarding. Yeah. The questions now, I think, are because there was this flood of data and digital information that doesn't exist any other way. And how do you capture that and make sure that it lasts not only just as data itself, but the context in which it was created and in which has a lot of meaning to it, you know, and you need to really be very cognizant about what you're doing every step of the way when you're trying to deal with this digital preservation
0: well, t- t- issue. Well, t- tell me some more about that, about the context and what do you what do you mean about uh, are, are you talking about like adding extra metadata to you know keep keep track of the context where you got the original stuff from or yeah what do you I mean, mean I you think
1: that's it? exactly especially for you know archivists who are capturing things from the web, you need to make sure that you say what you're doing, you know, be very deliberate and document what, what you're doing. For example, we collect a lot of websites, you know, and web archiving is a very complicated process and you need to kind of make sure that you're clear about what it is you're getting, where it came from and how you captured it and how you want to maintain it. In whatever form you can, um, that's tricky. Um, the other piece that we've been mm, pretty heavily focused on is capturing email accounts, and you know that's a mess. Capturing an email account—it's like the way that people use email, unless it's really. Heavily prescribed on how they're supposed to be doing it. <laughs> where I haven't seen a system yet that does that. Um,
0: are you talking about? Are you, are you talking about the the email capture right now within the Smithsonian?
1: Yes. Yeah. Right now we are. This is one of our biggest challenges. Is you know for the longest time. One of my responsibilities of the, of the the institution archives is obviously to document major activities of the institution and, and major um, people, you know, what we call kind of administrative files or files that come from the undersecretary's office or the secretary's office that include, you know, everything from their daily email to, you know, events and word documents and whatever it is they're creating. We're supposed to be managing all of that. And, um, so when we, or let's say a very significant figure leaves the institution, well, we're then supposed to, you know, capture their uh, files. And so that's what we try to do. And it's, um, you know, when I first got here, I was sort of s- surprised because we were really in the throes of trying to figure out how to do that, and it really hadn't been something I contemplated very significantly when I was working at RLG. So it was sort of like, "Wow, this is a problem, and how are we going to
0: solve this?" <laughs> well, isn't it just um, a matter of going to the to the mail server and taking it off? Doesn't it all reside on the mail server, and you could just take it off the the different accounts?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, we have we we can do that. We have a way to do that. We have, um, you know, you have to. All the emails have administrative, you know, controls, and we need. We work really closely with our information office to make sure that we are able to capture those things um, from them and they transfer them over, you know, as a whole rather than trying to figure them out. And I think email for the longest time has been a huge challenge for everybody because there is this urge to organize it and weed it and you know do something with it Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and I think we've come to the conclusion that we we really shouldn't be doing that (laughs) (laughs) that we really just need to say this is this is the way this person's files this is it you know and you can search on it pretty much whatever way you want but this is what it is and so and people still don't use very good, you know, subject tagging for even their subject lines in their email. So you can get these long strings of email that sound like they're useless but, in fact, started with something very important. And so we we basically just take the whole thing and can't worry about, you know, weeding or sorting or
0: anything like Sure. That. And you would just leave, leave it up to, to the researcher to... To make some sense of it, as long as you get yeah. all of this stuff. as long as stuff, we know how
1: to keep it alive and keep it, you know, fresh and keep migrating it and find a stable environment for it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> and let me let me ask you, to take a step back there for a second. So we sure. talked we talked about right. RLG and you work at mm-hmm. RLG. Um, so you're you're the director of the Smithsonian Institution Archives, and right. I'm sort of, but only sort of, familiar with what that is. You 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 archive. Not things that come into the Smithsonian, but um, the 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 um,
2: the institution
0: itself. The institution itself. Can, can right. you explain it to me a little more? Like what that means? Sure. How far that goes? So yeah.
1: Okay. Sure. Well, um, the Smithsonian Institution is a pretty complicated organization. We have about nineteen museums, um, nine major research centers located in various places around the world. We have. Uh, a library system that includes 20 libraries we have um a lot of research scientists all over the world collecting information of sorts so our job has basically been to document both the history of the institution from its inception you know to current day activities so we're really Interested in documenting um, like let's say a new museum is coming online, and we need to be in touch with that activity from the very beginning because we really want to capture the information about how that museum gets formed, you know the sort of very high level official records of surrounding the activities of the institution, and it's people. Um, official publications that are sort of pan-institutional, things like that are something that we, we capture. We have been, been trying to capture and preserve all of the institutions' websites and now their social media accounts. Whether we're capturing them or just keeping track of them is kind of mostly what we're trying to do with that <laughs> stuff right now. We realized the other day we have well over 300 social media sites, you know, that's including, like, Facebook pages and blogs and even Twitter accounts for some people that we want to try to capture, but, so, does that answer your question a little bit?
0: Yeah, well, it it does, but, yeah, yeah, so, so your focus is the Smithsonian itself, and, and, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, right,
1: we're, we're, we're the institutional archives, you know, we're the, the Official records of the institution really are our responsibility. We also do records management for the whole organization, so we're pretty tied into the the information world here and who's doing what. And
0: so, when, when you first started, it was uh, uh, around two thousand seven. Yes. Um. What What was it? You know what was it like? What was the not the condition of it? Not to, mm-hmm. not not trying to get at anything like you know it was a shambles and you you made it all right. I mean, what did you mm-hmm. walk? What did you walk into? What did it look like when you when you when you came into it?
1: Well, I walked in. I mean, I think I was in really good shape. I think that they have an excellent archive here. They've been documenting stuff since the his, you know the beginning of time. We had some really good people in place. The um, the IT archivist here was already engaged in a a collaborative project to start to study how we were going to deal with electronic mail. And so they were really thinking about some things. They were also, I think, a little bit behind the curve in terms of using technology to um, best highlight the collections here. So they didn't they had a website but it was really really unfortunate <laughs> <laughs> and you know they weren't doing any any social media or anything like that and they hadn't really embraced mm, Ead as a way to describe the finding aids and get them out online but those were really easy things to to implement once people here were sort of given the resources to do that and encouraged to do it. I remember coming in one of the first staff meetings, we had, you know, this person said to me, you know, you're, you're not going to make us a blog, are you?
2: <laughs> and I said, well,
1: you know, I don't think you can really make people blog.
2: <laughs>
1: well, this sort of goes against the nature of the blog. <laughs> it's supposed to be something you want to do. <laughs> and, and, you know, and now we have, We've put all of our funding aids are online. We have a new website. We are blogging like crazy. Our blog is probably one of the best ones at the Smithsonian. I'm proud to say.
0: And I'm sure that you keep stats on on the usage of everything. You, you, Absolutely, you get a lot of traffic to your blog.
1: A lot of traffic to our blog, mm-hmm. and we get we're getting a lot more um, notice from like the really big blogs too. We just got. Boing Boing just picked us up the other day on something we had put out and, um, what is it, Wired Online, made, a Tech Online picked us up. and um,
0: That's a pretty good anyway, so yeah, Anyway, so we
1: really video. turned things around in terms of, you know, making the archives much more exciting and out there and, you know, really pushing our information out there in a, a new and different way. And it's funny because today we're doing this really cool thing right this afternoon as we're speaking. We have our Wikipedian in residence who's just started working with us, and she's hosting an edit-a-thon in our conference room right now. (laughs) (laughs) So we have these, you know, the Wikipedians that they have that are going around, and Wikipedia has figured out this way to sort of badge people and say they're they can be official editors and so they go around to different places and you know work with their information and and try to either edit information on wikipedia or or put new information out there and we have six of them right now sitting in a room doing an editathon on women's History sources that they're using from our collection.
0: That's great. Yes, <laughs> that's great.
1: I know it's great. It's so, like, they're, so,
0: they're, so they're not. Are they? Are they uh, uh, making adjustments to um, Smithsonian the Smithsonian entry on Wikipedia? Or they will
1: be the one uh, the one that will continue on here as a, she's going to be with us for I don't know how how many months she's a Wiki, she's still in, in graduate school but she's. Uh, been badged by Wikipedia to be an <laughs> editor, and she's doing the, a lot of this kind of as her graduate project, and um, so she'll be working a lot on the Smithsonian content that's on Wikipedia about the Smithsonian Institution. And The reason this is interesting is because we, you know, how Wikipedia works, we can't do our own.
0: That's that was I was, I was about to I was about to ask you that. Yeah, so I'm surprised so that you can to
1: keep it from being biased they have these these editors who you know she's not an employee of the Smithsonian institution
0: oh okay but
1: she's going to help clean that section up using resources that she can have access to here and so we're we're really excited about it and um,
0: how cool is that yeah it's pretty cool (laughs) (laughs) I'm so impressed with these people they're just like amazing well a decade ago that 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 job title never existed,
1: <laughs> right? Oh, I know. I mean, it's like something that should be in the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: they, they, should, they, should, they should. They should probably call themselves Wiccans too. That would. Be <laughs> <awesome>. <laughs> that
1: does sound like funny, <laughs> like that, doesn't it? But they're very funny. And um, the other thing that we are finding and learning about how powerful this new media and you know pushing our stuff out in all these various venues. B is um, we did our first foray, foray into um, the Flickr Commons about three years ago. We put a, do you know, are you familiar
0: with the Flickr Commons? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Library of yeah. Congress has some photos out there, yeah.
1: The Library of Congress was the first institution that went up in the, in the Flickr Commons, and then we were like the fourth, I think. And basically it's a part of Flickr that's dedicated to not-for-profit cultural institutions that want to share their photo collections in that space. Mm-hmm. So all the stuff that we put up there is, you know, uh, freely available to the public and but also open to the public to tag and comment and, and we've discovered that we can use that space to get help from people about things in our collections that we don't have enough information about. Oh,
0: great. Great.
2: So it's, we often it's put like a, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. We often put like whole sets of photos that we have very little information about. We just put them out there and say, "Please help us, you know, identify these people or these places or whatever." And it's amazing how many people out there just are love this stuff and you know within 24 hours they're like swarming on the new stuff (laughs) it's it's so exciting for me to see how powerful this can be you know that you can reach a whole different audience and it's it's really it's cool (laughs) and the crowdsourcing stuff is is also really amazing we're hoping over the course of the next year or so that we're working on a project to expose our um, field notebooks that we have thousands of field notebooks from explorers and expeditions and, you know, curate scientists who did their work in the field and were, you know, taking notes on what they were collecting and they're amazing. That's just an amazing source of information that has become separated from the stuff that got collected. You know, the stuff that got collected goes into the museums with a very brief description and a tag on it or something. But those notebooks actually have all the information about how those things were collected and where they came from and what they were called and what they looked like and what people use them for. And
0: are they are they are they just scanned?
1: Well, we're, we're, first we're just trying to find them.
2: <laughs>
1: and <laughs> second, we're, we're cataloging them and then as soon as we get money enough, we're going to digitize as many of them as we can. Okay. Because what we want to do is put them online so that people can help us transcribe them. A lot of these are, you know, in handwritten Notes that were taken very hastily in the field, or they have these incredibly beautiful drawings. And taxonomy is very important in this field, in lots of the you know fields that we support. So to get some crowdsourcing going on those would be fantastic. Um, We just don't have the volume yet to to really go out big time.
0: That's it. That's so. That's so wonderful how you use um crowdsourcing. You know, how, how you use it between the Flickr Commons photos and, and this or do you use it anywhere else?
1: Um well let's see. One of the things the Flickr Commons, our Facebook page is usually used to kind of put big stories or repurpose things from our blog mm-hmm. out into another community. Um I think
0: of there was something else I was gonna talk about, but I forgot. But still, that's and, and especially the uh, the uh, uh, transcription of handwritten notes. That's just that's that's great. And, and well, sure. yeah,
1: it's the thing that we could never do on our yeah. own, you know, yeah. and we wouldn't do.
0: Yeah. Um. And and who wouldn't want to help the Smithsonian in And there know? are it's
1: so many, you know, avid naturalists out there, people who could really you know, amateurs who could help us in just every every subject that we have, you know. So, the other thing, this is what I was going to remember to say, is the first time we went out to Flickr with a big set of, we put a big set of photographs, or not photos, but portraits of scientists. And we thought, oh my God, this is so boring, you know. It's like, <laughs> No one's going to pay attention, <laughs> <Like, laughs> but it was the easiest collection for us to get out there because it was already digitized, and, you know, it was all public domain stuff, so we were like, okay, fine, let's just go with that and see what happens. Within two days, someone had taken almost all of those portraits and copied them into the bio biographies that were on Wikipedia. Now, that is something we would never
0: oh, have thought
1: wow. to do. I mean, and we would never have done it, probably. <laughs> oh, Wow.
0: But somebody so, so, was
1: just so excited, and they were like, "Oh,
0: this so is the right. corresponding." <laughs> the, so they found the 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 scientists' names on Wikipedia, mm-hmm. and and inserted the the photos right. they put up. That is so. And who could foresee that? That's that's incredible. can
1: That's that's the beauty of this is that you can't even possibly anticipate how people are going to use these things, what they're going to be interested in. But now that we've had this going for a while, we can see when people get excited about certain things, you know, we can sort of begin to get, see some patterns of what's really good and interesting and what isn't. And so, and we also learned that, you know, you got to kind of keep feeding it because you'll get this big spike every time you put new stuff out there and then, you know, it'll plateau off. And then the next time you put some more new stuff. So we, we try to get stuff out there about every week or two, Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: not the flicker. So it's fun <laughs> <laughs> That's,
0: and, and i I have a lot to ask you, but I'll just kind of whittle it down to a couple more things here okay right. um, well I, I personally i'm curious about the oral history program can you can you talk about that
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, we've been doing oral histories here for a very long time um, there a woman named Pam Henson, um, who works here in the archives, has been doing oral histories really for since probably the I'm going to say late 70s, early 80s. And she's done all kinds of things from, you know, interviewing some of the secretaries of the Smithsonian to interviewing some very, you know, significant scientists who've worked here. Um, and oftentimes, you know, I think oral history gets a sort of a short shrift because people have... I mean, it's a very subjective kind of recording of a, a person's memories and and um, impressions, you know, and that changes over time. And But you have to take them for what they are. Mm-hmm. And it's so powerful, though, to hear someone, you know, hear their voice, hear the way they describe what their work was like. And we're going to now start... Now that we have the technology and the ability to do this, we're hoping to really get mo- more of those kinds of things online, and so that people don't have to come here and go in the listening room, <laughs> <and> <laughs> put on their headphones, <laughs> 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 because that you know that that is really the next thing we want to try to do. Is get a lot more video and and audio things out on our website.
0: Yeah, and I think that uh, we're we're still. We're, we're kind of on the brink of uh, being able to search through that stuff right now. Uh, mm-hmm. How that's done, I'm not quite sure whether it's you know audio to text or or you know the or uh, I'm, I'm not sure how it works, but I think it'll be a lot more appreciated when you don't have to sit through a one hour mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, <laughs> talking ahead. But but, right. but but I actually get kind of a menu choice of, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. just clicking and, and going to the one spot that interests you. Absolutely. You know, no, that t- that's... It takes a lot of work to do it manually. So I, I, I know that it, it's still going to be uh, a, a little while before we get to it uh, automatically. But that will make it that much more valuable.
1: Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and YouTube is probably the place where we'll be putting a lot of that stuff up because if you can get it into YouTube well we can feed it through our website but we could also put some stuff up on YouTube and that's where you can really get a big audience and the kind of people who want to scroll through a, an hour long presentation sure. you know
0: Yeah yeah yeah. So. Yeah. Well I, I did want to ask you about about the Library of Congress's um uh the Blue Ribbon Task Force uh, that, Right. Uh, you you served on that task force so Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Can you talk about that, like the experience and maybe yeah. what, what you took away from it?
1: And it was an incredible experience to be able to work with um, people from lots of different disciplines were brought together to talk about this problem of the long-term sustainability for digital preservation. So the, the focus at the beginning was really on economics, and it was very difficult for a lot of us who are not economists to kind of understand what they were talking about. But ultimately, I think we all, there was a leveling effect that we all got to the same place where we understood what other people were talking about, and we could actually apply those concepts to the way that we would think about stewardship. And um, so... What did I take away from it? I, I think what we did ultimately was to try to say the best thing we can do is sort of parse up the universe of data that's out there and, and, and figure out, like, who are the main stakeholders in this endeavor? You know, who cares about scholarly research data? Well, lots of people, lots of scholars care very deeply about that and care a lot about its sustainability, and really are going to need, I mean, it's like critical data that needs to be kept. But the scientists themselves are not necessarily the right people to be the stewards of that data. So who are the people who are responsible for being the stewards of that data? And, you know, it's not always clear who that would be. So there's often a very strong misalignment between, you know, the people who care about this this resource or these data and the people who are going to actually end up paying for it and keeping it for the long term. Mm -hmm. So how do you fix that? You know, how do you figure out the transfer of that data to a responsible repository? Where are those repositories? And, and, you know, a lot of times these, all we could do is sort of ask the question, or raise the question and say this is the way we need to be thinking about the future. There have to be major, you know, repositories that have the resources to take care of these things and the mission to do so. And if it's not in universities and places that would normally be thought of as the logical repositories for this stuff, you know, where is it going to go and who's going to take care of it? One of the things that came out of that particular discussion was the National Science Foundation realized that they needed to write into their guidelines that if they're going to give money to people to do this research, that that research has to be made available. There has to be a plan for that data. There has to be, from the inception of the research, they have to have a plan for what they're going to do with that data and where it's going to go. And this is huge because that's never been, you know, stated overtly before. And and it's good in a way because it's making everybody think about it, but it's also kind of hard in a way because the repositories aren't really always evident. Um, So there are a lot of people working on um, trying to help people both write their data management plans so that they're successful in getting their grant proposals. And there are also a lot of people helping to think about how to construct these research data repositories. So there's some movement there. And that was one of the areas where I really think we were very successful at, you know, kind of identifying the problem and coming up with some recommendations that actually were implemented. Some of the other questions we had were things like, well, there's a whole bunch of data out there that doesn't really belong. Well, let's see. How can I put this? There's, there's like commercially generated data that might be very interesting and important to save, but the people who are creating that, that resource have no, no real Interest in its preservation, other than maybe keeping it as long as it has some commercial value, and I'm thinking here about like um, the film industry, which isn't even film anymore. You know, it's like people who are making films these days are using digital formats, and we had a speaker at our our final conference, this guy who the co-producer from um, Avatar, John Landau, and he said, you know, the problem with this is that there, that Avatar is done and it's gone. You know, in the, in, in the original version of that production, there were all these people who did different pieces of it and, you know, you get a production company that comes together and does all this stuff and then when it's done, they disband and go and do other things. So there's no place where there's like a centralized record of this movie. And in fact, the movie itself was just, you know, with a digital presentation that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, if you think about that, that's pretty creepy. (laughs) So you know, you can buy a DVD of Avatar, and you can you know still go to the movies and see it in the 3D version, but the original, you know, production isn't there anymore. So,
0: so you suggesting that? um...
1: Well, we were what we were thinking is that this is the kind of stuff that's really you know a lot of our cultural information is going to disappear if we don't figure out a way to kind of make it, bring that problem to light and try to encourage some organizations to actually take on the responsibility of preserving these things.
0: Right, right.
1: So... The, well, you know i mean these were just a few of the big questions that we were talking
0: about
2: but and, and, you
0: know and getting back to the to the NSF grant i understand mm-hmm. that that they they want mm-hmm. they want um um what uh, what's it called born archival i've heard the term born archival that mm-hmm. that from the beginning uh the intent is is for everything to end up in the archives and you prepare it for it to be archived right so are you are you suggesting that you want that to be uh um like across the board with any kind of digital project like a movie? where uh, Well, I
1: absolutely think that would be a fantastic solution to the problem where you embed an archivist in a production company and say, you know, (laughs) from the get-go, you're going to be creating these kinds of things. This is how we're going to preserve them, you know. And it's kind of a kooky idea, but I think that that's kind of what should happen.
0: What well, they have? The, who'd you say it was a Wikipedia? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> what, no, which, which, what was her title again?
1: The Wikipedian and Residence. <laughs> oh, the
0: Wikipedian and Residence, yeah, yeah. So there's got to be some kind of a, a 21st century of uh, you know archivist embedded
1: in the production company.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, with, with yeah. a better with a better title. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, look at those horrible titles they have in film productions. Oh you yeah, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. They name everybody who held the microphone and it's <laughs> like <laughs> Where's the Archivist?
2: <laughs> what, but yet?
1: you know, I mean, think about this the film heritage of America is very important and we've gone to great lengths to try to preserve older film and, you know, even, you know, original nitrate films. The Library of Congress has a huge collection of, you know, early American film and it's always been kind of a, a cool part of our culture. We've, we've had a very strong um, film history, and yet a lot of it is going to be just gone.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and of course, the historians, like film historians, mm-hmm. have a lot of work to do to to give it a context, as you said mm-hmm. in the beginning, and to give it a context and to pull together all the, the anecdotal stuff. Right. So, yeah, it would be nice if an archivist were there from the beginning to to keep it all together, to archive mm-hmm. all the relevant parts.
1: But that was just, you know, one example. There's so much more that, you know, things that we really don't have a lot of control over. And, and the problems are huge. You know, even thinking about just government data is, like, massive. And the National Archives has just, a huge challenge in terms of thinking about how they're going to maintain them on data that they're responsible for over time. And that's another conversation that <laughs> 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 makes me tired. To think well, about it. <laughs> and, and I
0: appreciate you. You've been real generous with your time. Is, is there anything you wanted to say kind of in closing about any direction that, that you, you'd like to see the Smithsonian to go, or not even direction, you know, any any, any, uh Plans or anything? I would just say that
1: I think that we, the Smithsonian, is in a a wonderful place right now because the Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, Dr. Wayne Clough, is a huge supporter of you know taking the responsibility and for making our collections accessible to the public as widely as possible. When he first came here, he was like, we're going to digitize everything at the Smithsonian. And a lot of us cringed at that.
2: <laughs> I <was> like, really? <laughs>
1: but it was so bold and it's such a great aspiration, you know, that we'd love to do that. That's exactly what we would love to do. And, you know, working in an environment where that really is a part of the the belief system that we are responsible for not only holding this stuff and making sure that we take care of it but it's also getting it out there and making it accessible in the best ways possible for the most people because we're really here to serve the the world of learners you know from the beginning of t- their early childhood through their lives we have we have things to give And offer and help people learn about new and different things. And it's just a very exciting place to be right now. So keep watching.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And, gosh, thanks.
0: Thanks.
1: You're welcome. This
0: This has been a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information about digital preservation, please visit digitalpreservation.com.